welcome. This is Talking Joy, creating joy, inner peace, and authentic connections. My name is Pam Rotelli-Robertson, and I am founder of lifestyle brand Talking Joy. As a certified spiritual director, I have been leading groups with the power of words, the strength of positivity, and the gift of joy. During our time together, our focus will be on simple spiritual practices that can be applied to your everyday life with the wisdom and support of others. Talking Joy talks to help you realize your value. I am so glad you're here. Simple, joyful, fun. Let's get talking. So welcome, Joy. It's so great to see you. Thank you, Pam. It's great to see you too. And, you know, we know each other for a long time and it's very exciting to be back in touch again. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me to be here with you. Yeah. Um, So Joy, you've had eight near-death experiences. Eight. That's, that's a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that I maybe had one on a highway once and, and I think somebody picked up my car and moved it. I can't explain how I escaped. Um, it's, it's almost feels like a dream, but aside from that, you know, I have not had the experiences you've had and many haven't, but wow. Um, the things that the learnings and the, the depth of your, um, uh, your gift for joy of life has really pulled you through so many things. Um, what would you say in difficult times? Um, how do you move out of despair and towards towards the light? Well, Pam, that's the that's the big question for almost everyone. And I would be not truthful if I wouldn't say that there wasn't a lot of despair and sorrow and loss and grief in many of the. Uh, experiences I've had. And I think part of what's important for people to understand is that when we do go through a very difficult time, and we have lost a lot, or we are in despair, is to admit it and to go to it and to work with that, not just to say, everything's fine, everything's great, I'm okay. And then underneath the rug, it's the garbage is piling up and an explosion will happen. So I think the first thing is to acknowledge our pain when we go through a very difficult time and then to really reach out for help. Help is much more important than we ever thought it was. So many of us are very independent. I've been an extremely independent woman in spite of all my close encounters with death. But I have found that in every one of my encounters, there has always been someone who's been there to help me, to pull me through, whether it was literally saved my life or walk me through, you know, by being a good uh, friend or a good uh, supporter or whatever. So reaching out for help is really important. Mm -hmm. But then I think one has to look at oneself. And I think when we go through some of these very near death experiences or close encounters with death, let's put it that way, we need to really look at what is it that is still there about me that is a great thing about me or is a gift that I have or is a passion that I have? And if you don't know that, you better look for it because we all have something inside of ourselves that is very special and nothing can take that away. Neither death nor uh, a near-death experience nor an injury nor a disability or whatever. And I've certainly had to live with all of those things. I have found that there's always something that's very deep for me that helps me. And I would suggest to anyone who's going through a really 
despairing or grieving process to do those steps. Admit it, reach for help, look for what is in you and then do it. Yeah. And I, I did notice that, um, that in each encounter that you described in the book, that people appeared helpers. And I, I believe that, that God places those helpers on our path, but it's up to us to say yes to the invitation. And that's what I'm hearing is that you said yes, when the helpers arrived, you said, yes, please. And they probably became encouragers also. Um, and then I'm also hearing that, that we all have a gift and or many gifts at different times in our life and to find out and hone in on what those are. So I'm hearing some soul searching is happening. Absolutely, Pam. And again and again, I would say we have to be open to the people that drop into our lives, whether it's a gift from God or whether it's just someone who is strolling by and is anxious to be a helper, to not say you can't help me or no thank you, but to say, yes, here's what I need. It isn't like um, I often say as a disabled person, you don't go up to a disabled person and say, you can't do that. I'll do it for you. You never do that. You mm -hmm. ask someone, can I help you with that door? Or can I help you get up the stairs? Or can I help you think this through? And the disabled person has to learn, or the, the person who's got a problem has to learn to be able to say, yeah, here is a great opportunity for me to build a relationship with someone, help someone else, because it's a gift you are giving to someone else when you say, yes, thank you. I'd like you to help me. Mm, I love that. Love that. And it's very hard. It sounds so simple and easy, but it is hard for people at times to receive help when they feel vulnerable. Um, and what I'm hearing is to have an open heart and be receptive to, to the people that are placed on our path. And there were many placed on your path. Um, do you think we've, we talked about, we've all had, we all have these gifts. Do you think that we all have the, this gift of possibility inside all of us, inside of us that, you know, although we may go through despair and grief, which, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're a grown up, you've, you've experienced those things in life, um, they're inevitable. Pam, everybody has some kind of possibility inside of them. I truly believe that. It doesn't matter what their IQ is, what their work is, what their passion for life is. There's always some possibility. Um, for somebody, it's as simple as I can make a phone call to some people. I may be almost paralyzed, that could be someone, but I can call some other people and chat with them and lift their spirits. It may be someone who can go out and teach someone a great uh, course or whatever, but I think every single person alive has some possibility inside of them that is more than just a degree or a job title, but is a gift. And I really believe that strongly. And I say it over and over to everyone. <laughs> you have a gift there. Just find your gift and then use it. Yeah. Because that's what we're supposed to do, aren't we? I mean, really? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I would say that when I was younger, I didn't really understand what that meant. And I used to look to people that were good at a craft. And I think, oh, well, 
she's an attorney or she's a doctor because you had this label. And I always thought, well, I don't know what my gift is. I'm trying, still trying to figure it out. And as life has unfolded, my gift has unfolded at, because I said yes to invitations when somebody said, oh, you know, you might be good at, you know, spiritual direction or you, you, you might be a good. And I'm like, well, what's that? <laughs> and, you know, you might be good at leading workshops. And, and so I slowly said yes to, to invitations that came along and, and stepped outside of my comfort zone in order to find my gift. So there is some seeking that I'm hearing that needs to be done. Oh, yes. And others it's often see easy. it before we do. It's really true that other people, like maybe I could see a gift in you that you wouldn't see in you for a while. And you have to kind of, and you eventually, you have to, one has to discover one's own gift. It isn't something, you can't tell me what my gift is. I can't tell you what your gift is. You know, if you ask me, I'll share with you, you know, this is what I think, but until you believe in your own gift and are open to it, it's not going to help. Yeah. So. So when you were little, your father, um, well, just to back up a little bit, you start the book out by talking about growing up in Nebraska um, on a farm and with animals. And I think the animals taught you a lot about life. Um, I love the, the story about your name, that your parents were looking for a strong boy to help out with the farm. And that, you know, you came along back then, people didn't know probably what the sex of the baby was, you know, ahead of time, like, like people do now. And they needed um, a boy because they were on a farm, they needed a boy and they only had one other young girl. That was my older sister. And yes. my mother wasn't very healthy, so she couldn't have a lot more children. So they were sure, oh, she's going to be, I am <laughs> going to be David Charles. And when I popped out and daddy was right there, fortunately, they left him be in the room or they allowed him to be there in the room where my mother gave me birth. And um, they said, whoops, she's not David Charles. And my dad said, it's all right. She'll be our little joy. Mm -hmm. And let's call her joy. I have loved that name because it's pretty hard not to look for joy in your life when you have the name joy. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of too? And I, I probably told you this in the past that my mother's name was also joy. And, you know, obviously my podcast is called talking joy. And I use that name a lot. Um, uh, a, you know, a reminder of my mom was very joyful. She had a fabulous personality. Um, but you came into the world and, and people were joyful upon your arrival and you were named joy because of that. And I love that, that what your father thought he needed, but yet he was able to pivot in that moment and say, oh, you know, look at this joyful bundle that, that has arrived. Um, your father also told you that uh, you would do something extraordinary with your life. He was an amazing man. Uh, it didn't matter whatever happened. And in those days, uh, girls weren't exactly looked upon with as much positive feeling as boys were. But, you know, I, I was determined to be my father's son, too. And I worked on the tractor and with the horses and all the rest of it. And uh, but my father and I had a very close relationship. And um, I'll never forget whenever something went a little bit wrong, 
he was always encouraging. For example, I thought I was going to grow up to be a Yankee baseball player because we had read the book about Babe Ruth. And <laughs> we laughed together about it and thought it was wonderful. And I could hit the ball pretty well. I could hit it all the way over the pig pen. So <laughs> I was sure I'd grow up to be a Yankee baseball player. And one day I said to a neighbor who asked me, what are you going to be when you grow up, Joy? And I said, a Yankee baseball player. And uh, you can't never be a Yankee baseball player. You're just a girl. And then he went on and said, you'll be lucky if you find yourself a good man. <laughs> but I told my dad that almost in tears because everybody else had kind of just patted me on the head and said, oh, that's nice, you know, joking or whatever. But he really blew my bubble. <laughs> and my dad said, Joy, I want you to remember something all your life. You're going to grow up to be, do something very important with your life. And it doesn't matter what happens in between now and then, keep working on doing things that are very important in this world. And to this day, I still hear my dad saying those words, mm -hmm. we'll do something that's important. Don't stop, even when you I, get old or you're disabled. I, I love that so much, Joy. I mean, it makes me, it makes me choked up even hearing it because <laughs> it's so important to be an encourager of our children and I have a lot of moms that listen to my podcast and it's just such a beautiful reminder how, you know, you have carried those words and believed that, and it's true, but you've carried that you're in it there. It's threaded through everything that you have done. I mean, you've done extraordinary things. I mean, you're, you're a global citizen, <laughs> you know, you've, You've worked at, in remote areas all over the world in, in, in unbelievable conditions, um, you know, with Save the Children and um, you were in Vietnam and Sri Lanka and um, South America. I mean, it goes on and on and people can read about that in the bio, but you did go on to do extraordinary things. Um, the education that you have and the, the children that you've worked with both in here in the United States and also with people after the World Trade Center and um, bombing. And, and uh, so you have been a great encourager. So your father was right. But I love when parents paint those words on their children. Because I, I do think too. It, I think it pivots us. And, and when I was reading your book, I was like, where was the starting point for your positivity and for your um, zest for life. And I think it, that your father planted the seed. You probably are, we all have it inside of us, but I think he helped to, to make it bloom for you. He really fed that seed so that it grew and it nurtured, was nurtured. You know, that doesn't mean there weren't some really down times in sure. life. There always are for all of us, yeah. but always underneath there was my father's words and his positive attitude in fact, on my refrigerator door, I have a couple of uh, sayings like one is never, never, never give up. Another one is falling down is part of life. Getting up is living. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I, I really hope all mothers and fathers or whoever listens to this podcast will really encourage their children to to be their best that they can be, whatever that means. That doesn't mean they have to be someone who uh, invents a cure for polio. It can be whatever it is that is best for them. So thank you for even bringing that up. Pam. Oh, yeah. It would just, that touched me right at the beginning of the book, because 
I often will interview people and I can see once we start talking about the thread of their life, the invitations that we were talking about and how one thing led to another. And you talked about at one point in the book, how you were teaching in Southern California and somebody there, I think it was there. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but said she didn't want you to get too comfortable there, that she wanted to push you sort of into new horizons or into new things. Um, yeah, let me just mention that because um, it's so easy to get comfortable in, in our lives. We have we live such comfortable lives, particularly here in the United States. And uh, it's very easy to just get into our beautiful homes, our lovely children, our neighborhoods, and maybe do a few things in our neighborhoods or in our church, but we don't really reach out. And I'll never forget, I was teaching uh, in an, a school in California, and this woman said, it's not enough. You've got something else to offer. And she said, I work with Mexican migrant workers who ha don't have anything hardly at all, and they want, need to speak a little bit of English so they can get by. They're here to pick oranges in California at that time. And uh, you need to learn how to work with them. So I went to... Frank Laubach's Each One Teach One courses and learned how, and it was just an amazing experience to work with these people who wanted so much just to know a few words, just to know how to write their name in English and speak a few words in English to say, thank you, hello, this is what I want, etc. So yes, don't ever just let yourself get too comfortable. Because I don't think that was what uh, God wants us to do either. I think God wants to challenge us all the time. Yeah, but see, that was another invitation for you to step out of your comfort zone. And you said yes to this woman's offer to sort of branch out and, and do something different. And that set you on sort of this course of your life of going to different countries and helping children. And would right. you, yeah. Yeah, because what happened after that with that woman kind of breaking the ice, um, I became very open to other people. And so then somebody introduced me to a woman who had worked in China for many years with the Methodist missionaries. And uh, she said, you can't just only know your own culture, Joy. It's time for you to learn about the world. Because what do you know about the world? You don't know anything. You read a little bit in the paper or whatever in a book, but you've got to get out there and understand the poverty, the needs, the, the thoughts, the wishes, the desires of people in another part of the world. And before long, she had me convinced that I needed to go back to graduate school and study international studies, uh, language skills. And before long, I was off to Pakistan, yeah. Karachi, Pakistan, which at that time was West Pakistan, but um, and, and very, very uh, friendly to all Americans at that point. It was a very, we were like allies together at that time. But she was the one who said, got to get out there. You've got to expand your mind and your ability to reach out to other people. So that was a great challenge. So I'm so grateful for people like that who stepped into my life. But I was also grateful that I was open to it. That you were see that. Yeah, I love that. But there seems to be a theme of that in our conversation so far. Um, you wrote that a village woman told you something really valuable. Oh, she yeah. did. <laughs> and, I was working in, in uh, Karachi, Pakistan. It was really 
one of the poorest places I've worked. I've worked in a lot of really poverty uh, oriented places and where there just was no, no electricity, no running water, no uh, sanitary facilities, no toilets. And the street was kind of the restroom or whatever. And houses were just mud huts that washed away in the when the monsoon season came. That was in Karachi, Pakistan, in a slum area where the refugees from India had come. And I was working there uh, building schools for kids and adult literacy programs. And I was doing a lot of work for people. I was, you know, a giver. I wanted, well, this is my job. I'm supposed to be helping everybody, right? This wonderful woman probably was 35 or 40 at most. She looked like she was 80. But at that time, the life expectancy for Pakistani women was about 44, you know, because they died in childbirth or they died of an illness or whatever. But she looked ancient and she said, and she was speaking Urdu at that point, I could speak fluently. And she said to me, Joy, how wonderful that you come and you, you give so much to us and you're so kind to us and we love to see you and we're grateful for all that you do but you have to do something, you have to learn something. And she said, you have to accept our gifts to you because if you don't do that, you take away our dignity, you take away our respect for ourselves. So you must learn to also accept us as givers to you. So it's a give and take because sometimes as people who are very generous, we tend to give, give, give. Mm -hmm. And we don't let someone give back to us. You know, we feel good when we've given something to someone else. Well, they feel good when they can give us something too. And if we say, oh, no, 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 you don't need to give it to me. Wrong. We have to just say, thank you so much. What a wonderful gift. I see that so often with young women or women in general um, in, in my work that it is so easy to give and so quick to set up the, the food chain when somebody needs it and somebody's child, you know, maybe is diagnosed with something and everybody runs to help. But when it's your turn, you say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't need it. And so what wise words that that woman, you know, offered you that day. Um, so what did you learn, Joy? What did they, what did you get from the people there? What, what was your gift? The gift that they gave to me was that they were amazing, strong people, very poor, not, had nothing. And when the monsoons would come, everything was gone, but they had a sense of joy, <laughs> a sense of collegiality, a sense of community and a sense of hospitality. I would walk into the slum in the morning to go toward one of the schools or whatever. And, oh, Miss Joy, Miss Joy, Miss Sab, Miss Sab, come have some chai with us, some tea. They had no money. They had no kitchens. They had no place to make tea. They had no teacups. Mm -hmm. So they would gather their little coins together and they would go send one person off to the bazaar to buy one cup of tea, one cup of chai. And then we would sit down on the ground because there were no chairs, no place to sit, no sofas or anything. We'd sit on it, maybe on a gunny sack if we were lucky or just on the ground. And we would share a cup of tea and we'd pass it around. Uh, that's 
an unbelievable hospitable thing to do of hospitality. Of course, it's a good way also to get some illnesses when you're working <laughs> in a place like Pakistan too. But I never will forget the generosity of those people who had absolutely nothing who were giving to me so much. Yeah, and so much to be learned from that generosity of, of spirit. And, and I love the community togetherness. You know, I think we, we long for that here. You know, we become so individual and, and, you know, I think years ago people used to live near family and now we're sort of spread and scattered out all over and it's uh, harder to, um, to find that maybe um, for some. And I see you, uh, you know, on Facebook and, and you seem like you always have boundless energy and people around you. So I think that you, uh, you must um, attract, attract that to yourself. And being well, <laughs> I don't know whether I attract it, but I think I've learned so many lessons from so many teachers and those Pakistanis were wonderful teachers to me. Uh, about the sense of hospitality, community, love, understanding, forgiveness. Mm. And I can talk about that in many ways in many countries where I've worked. Yeah. Now you emphasize the word forgiveness. Tell me what that means to you. Well, I want to jump to then, if I may, to Vietnam. Yes, please. Okay. Because um, I was the, with Save the Children at the time. And it was shortly after the war, the American-Vietnamese War, and they mm -hmm. call it the American War, of course. And um, I started trying to negotiate, with, I was working with Save the Children to be able to work there because I could see all the statistics showed there was a lot of malnutrition, uh, a lot of Agent Orange and a lot of problems had happened in Vietnam, not just to military bases, but to schools, hospitals, you know, places that really needed help. And so I had to try to convince my Save the Children, my organization, which always supported my new work that I did, that it was okay for me to try to go to Vietnam. And I had to more difficult to convince was the government of the United States at that time, because at that point, we, it was still considered the enemy. And, you know, I, I can't imagine anybody is an enemy. We're all enemies, but we're all friends. And uh, there it was called trading with the enemy. And if you worked with a country like Vietnam, which we had no normalization of, of relationships yet with. So I had to convince the State Department of the United States that I was going to be able to go in there and help with malnutrition, but I wouldn't in any way change the economic status of any family in Vietnam. Now that was the rule because it was normalization had not taken place. And when I presented all of this to save the children, save the children said, well, it's obvious they need help because of the malnutrition we can see, we can see all the damage that's been done. I mean, I had pictures from schools that were just gone, hospitals gone, everything. And whole hills, no, no, greenery, nothing on it from Agent Orange. And uh, they said, all right, we'll let you go and do it, Joy, but you will have to be the person who puts your name on the license. And um, if the State Department will allow it, and you will raise all the money yourself. We will not give you any money at that point, because there had been plenty of people who had had sons who had died in Vietnam, mm -hmm. who were on our board, etc. 
And I said, I understand. I can really understand where that all comes from. Just realize that that um, it there's a lot of damage that's been done. There's a lot of need. So I I started going in and out of Vietnam a lot, negotiating with the government of Vietnam, which was welcoming to us. But what was really surprising to me was that when I said, how can you forgive us for what we've done? And they said, forgive? We knew it wasn't the people of the United States who were doing this war. We knew it was just a government to government thing. We knew that your government wanted the oil that was in the Gulf of Tonkin. And so, you know, and the French were the same. We know it's not you people. You, you're loving and caring. You want to have a good life just like we do. And so forgive, you're forgiven. And so every, all all my life now, when I work in places that, where there's hostility or there are problems, I think, wait a minute, where's that person's story? Who are they? What is it that they're thinking? What do they need? And what is it that I need to forgive or they need to forgive me for? And so it was a kind of a mutual learning about forgiveness, especially working in Vietnam. And that ended up being a terrific program we ended up having, it became the national demonstration program for Vietnam. We were the first uh, non-government organization to go into Vietnam. So I negotiated and I helped really the state department to begin to understand that normalization would be an important thing because business people would come to me and say, how do we get into Vietnam? I said, well, you wanna fund the program I'm gonna do? I'll take you into Vietnam with me. <laughs> and so there was a sense of forgiveness that was built into that whole process. And then the greatest and the best was when the Vietnam vets, our United States Vietnam vets said, can we go into Vietnam with you? We'd like to meet the enemy. And when I'd take them in and they would meet Vietnam soldiers who were wounded, who didn't have fancy equipment or wheelchairs or whatever, they wept with each other. Mm -hmm. I took Lou Puller, Lou Puller won the Pulitzer Prize for his book and he had lost both his legs in Vietnam. And I took him into Vietnam and I'll never forget that day when we landed and I thought, oh my, there's no, 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 um, whatever you call that causeway or whatever that comes out to the airplane. You had to go down the stairs and then back up the stairs to get into the terminal. And here comes three Vietnam soldiers come up the stairs and they pick up Lou Puller without his legs, with his arms around them. I'm crying. Oh, Lou's I'm going to cry. <laughs> oh, it was, it was just so powerful. And from that day on, he said, I feel healed about Vietnam because these are people just like me, mm -hmm. but they don't have nearly the opportunity. And we shouldn't have been there in the first place, he said. So, but anyway... Forgiveness. You know, what's interesting, Joy, is that you went and you gave, you did, but you also received, and what you received was the gift of forgiveness, of see, witnessing it, hearing about it, feeling it on, on all levels of, of your being, and able to now offer that out to others. Uh, that's amazing. What a, what a gift, because, you know, I it strikes me so much and that we forget this. It's just that even though people might have differences or be different than us, or we might not have the same beliefs, we still have the same hopes, dreams, right. desires, you know, we're, we're all human beings. And, and it's such a That's good right. reminder of that. It is. Yeah. And the first time I went into Vietnam, I was nervous because I thought, oh my, you know, I'm the enemy. 
(laughs) And I was shocked, you know, that when someone came to meet me while I was going through immigration and they said, are you um, an American? And I said, I didn't know whether to say yes or no, <laughs> because there were, there were no Americans around. There were Russians arriving on a plane, an Aeroflot jet, and there were uh, Asians there, but, and I was kind of the only American. He's, and this guy says to me, are you an American? I said, uh, yes. And then he said, well, are you from Save the Children? And I said, yes. And then he said, are you Joy? And I said, <laughs> yes. And he was Vukak Nu. He became my first friend in Vietnam and he was with the State Department in Vietnam and took me everywhere and showed me everywhere and and negotiated with me for three years. It took for us to get the U.S. government to finally approve for us to go in. So, wow. Let's see how your name came in handy in that moment. (laughs) I'm not going to turn joy away when joy arrives. That's true. Yeah. So you, um, uh, turn darkness into miracles, darkness into miracles. You know, that's, that's was a dark place and, and, and it became miraculous or, or, um, yeah. And, and just to tell you, Pam, what we did, because it was a miracle because I brought in only one set of American experts, what we were looking for in this very poor province, which was one of the poorest provinces, Tan Hoa province in Vietnam, we were looking to find if there was a positive deviant, if there was something that made the picture a little different because the kids were very malnourished, but there were some who were less malnourished than others because you know the fields had been bombed, everything was, it was a mess. But here were the mothers of these less, uh, new, uh, less malnourished children. And they were actually finding some little wild shrimp in the rice paddies and they were cutting the tops of certain edible weeds off and they were smashing that up and feeding that to their children. So this was the positive deviant. So we didn't bring in money to pay for someone to do something. We trained those women, those mothers to train the other mothers. And those other mothers who had children who were much more malnourished had to pay something to come to class. And what they had to pay is they had to bring a bar of soap and they had to bring some wild shrimp and they had to bring some tops of greens. So we conquered malnourishment in Tanwa province and it became really the national demonstration project for Vietnam. Oh, I keep getting goosebumps as you're talking and telling these stories. So you had mothers who had figured out how to feed their babies teach other mothers so you didn't need the money that the government said that you couldn't have you know there was no you weren't elevating anybody's economy you were just teaching other mothers something that someone had figured out and and it just I'm sure that it was like a um a movement of sorts that a a ripple effect is the guess the word it was a ripple effect yeah and that was so exciting so then after that, uh, when eventually normalization came and um, I was at that point, the head of all the NGOs who were interested in working in Vietnam, Cambodia or Laos, we, for about five years I did that. And we'd have conferences and we would invite the government officials from Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos and all the NGOs, there would be several hundred people there and they'd get a chance to meet together. And we brought the State Department there and we brought business people there because the business people were the ones who finally convinced the State Department 
we got to get in there because someone's going to get that oil in the Gulf of Tonkin. (laughs) But, and it, but it was so exciting. It was just an amazing experience. And I think that is probably one of my all over the top kind of experiences that I've had. I've had so many, but just the combination of everything, forgiveness, hope, and learning was amazing. So it takes a courageous person and by the way, I just went through my head, thought, I'm glad you didn't become the baseball player because the world needs, <laughs> needed you. Um, to it might have been terrific. <laughs> I'm sure you would have been. But it takes a courageous person to, um, to do something like that, to, to put yourself out there, to put your life at risk. You know, you, you got sick in some of these places um, by sharing, you know, the, uh, the tea and, um, or the chi. And so are we born courageous joy, or do you think that that's something that we, that we're taught again? Like, is that something that your father taught you to be courageous? Um, where it's, there's a fearlessness about you and I want to know um, where, where that comes from. Such a good question, really, Pam, because I think every one of us has a, a piece of courage inside of us. I think some of it does get beaten down. We may end up having bad experiences in church, bad experiences in schools, bad experiences with bully friends. We may have bad experiences with our parents who do not encourage that little bit of courage, encourage the courage to grow. And I was so blessed to be born and raised on a farm where I went to a one room country schoolhouse where there were 10 kids in eight grades and one teacher with only one year of education in at the university. And, uh, you know, but my dad would send me out when I'd go out at the tractor or with the horses. I, I was driving these huge horses. I was about six or seven years old and I had to hitch them up behind their legs. They could have kicked me and I would have been done. But my dad always believed in me and I just had confidence that I could do it. And I think he kept encouraging my courage mm-hmm. to grow. And the more you let your courage go, the more you find. There have been times when I've been a total chicken, you know, scared to death what I'm going to do is going to be the wrong thing. And so I, we all have that. So courage doesn't just come and stay. Yeah. And courage doesn't just uh, happen to all of us because a lot of people get terribly beaten down in their process. But uh, you look at a baby when a baby is born and it starts trying to walk or it starts trying to crawl or anything. I mean, that, that takes courage. It does. And, you know, you might fall, you might hurt yourself. But, you know, if you're treated properly, you'll have the strength to go on. So I think we are so, it's so important to be good parents, good people, friends that encourage one another, whatever it is. Yeah, no, I I agree with that 100% because we, if we didn't get it from the people that you mentioned who may not have given it to us or life circumstances may have taken some of it away from us seek out people that offer it because they appear on our path. It's those, and go back to the beginning of our conversation, it's those invitations then, and people will help draw it out of us or encourage it. Um, And so that it's, it, it, you can re re tap into it as, as life goes along is what I'm hearing. 
because it, not all of us will have a chance to have parents or someone or a teacher or a inspirational person in our life that will really push that courage button. And a lot of us will be beaten down. But if we are, if we are beaten down, we still have to start looking for it because if you get beaten down, you're going to get, go into depression, despair, regret, guilt, all wasted emotions. You know, yeah. So I, I totally agree. Got to look for it. There was a place in, in your story that I saw and felt that you were beaten down. Um, and I think it was, it was the brain tumor diagnosis. So if, you know, I don't want to tell your whole book or give your whole book away because I want people to read it. But at one of the uh, circumstances is you were hit by a car and you, you recover from that accident. But then they found when you had a checkup that you had a brain tumor. Um, and I met you around that time, because I remember you were saying that it was a blessing because they found the brain tumor and were able to remove it. But it seemed to me that I, th I think maybe you went to church and people surrounded you and prayed for you. Well, let um, me tell you the story just a yeah, little bit. Please. Because, um, when I went back for my checkup, it was a year after I'd been in the accident. Now the brain tumor was already on my x-ray, although they didn't read it because I was, I had so much cerebral hemorrhaging from my accident. So I went to a neurosurgeon because they told me I needed to because something was very wrong because this was a year later. I, I'm now living in Richmond, Virginia. I'm head of all the international programs for uh, Christian Children's Fund. And um, I went to a doctor who he looked at my x-rays. He, he turns, he, he's got his back to me and he turns around and says, you have a really bad brain tumor and it's in a bad place. Well, there's a five to 10% chance you're gonna die on the table. Five to 10% chance I'm gonna cut the vein right next to it. Five to 10% chance you'll be paralyzed. Five to 10% chance you'll never talk again. Five, he was, and I'm a note taker. So I'm writing down, would you repeat that five to 10% chance? I was adding it up, I was up to 120%. Yeah. Now that was a little disheartening, but the good news was I was going to a, a great, Presbyterian Church right in downtown uh, Richmond. And I went to the church that evening for their prayer service. And the young woman minister said, Joy, you look sad or is something wrong? I mean, I, I don't remember reading the words. I don't remember singing the songs, anything, but she caught it. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't really want to talk about it with anybody, but maybe I can share it with you. It's funny because when we have sometimes have something that's fatal or is desperate or is scary we don't want to necessarily tell people we're afraid they'll abandon us or they'll judge us or they'll walk away from us or whatever and she said well let's talk about it and I told her well I have a brain tumor and I told her all the percentages of how I was going to die and everything yeah. and she said I would like very much to call my doctor friends and see who they recommend because there must be some new resurgent who will be better than just telling you about risks. And that evening she called and she had five names, Harry Young, Harold Young, Hal Young, Harold Young, Harry Young. Five different doctors come up with the same doctor, Dr. Young, who to this day is my friend. We are now 27 years since my brain surgery. And he still calls me on the anniversary of our surgery day every wow. year. Wow. Joy, it's Harry. How are you doing? You know, <laughs> so, but yeah, I was a little down when that first doctor said yeah. all those things. And I thought, well, maybe I might as well just die. Why would I go back to him? 
but hope came out of the ashes of that. Oh, totally, totally. In, in this, in this, this person seeing you again, you know, as an invitation to share, and you did. And so often we want to close, you know, hold tight our secrets or our, our, our fears. And, and you were willing to, you know, maybe not to the whole group, but to privately talk to her. Um, and she was able to encourage you to look further because it didn't sound about right. That the guy didn't sound as compassionate. I'm, I'm hearing a doctor who has got an awful lot of compassion. If he's still calling you every year on your anniversary, <laughs> you know, what a caring soul versus the person uh -oh. who was all stuck up with the math numbers about, you know, all these different ways. Um, and, you know, and perhaps he saved your life. Um, oh, he did. Yeah. yeah. Because I wouldn't have gone to, I wouldn't have done the surgery if I had just stuck with that. I went for a second opinion. Then when I, after I talked with the minister, then I got the second opinion and I got this, spiritual doctor who is my friend and now i'm at mayo clinic and all my doctors are divine they're just wonderful yeah and so tell me a little bit about that so you've had this diagnosis um and i'm going to say the word wrong but it's paraneoplastic is that right syndrome you did syndrome. it i did it i'm i have a hard time with big words sometimes but um, and so when, when did you get that diagnosis, Joy? Can you tell me a little bit about that? And then I would love for you to share about this experience you're having at the Mayo Clinic. And Okay, uh, about a little over seven years ago, I was in Greece. I had just done a workshop in London and I, I flew over to Greece to be with a friend because she had just lost her husband and to help her kind of sort through her things in her house. She lived there and she lived in France part of the time. We had been good friends for many years. And um, while I was in Greece, we used to always go down this cliff down to this wonderful place to swim. And my legs were heavy and I, I'm a good swimmer. And but my legs just sunk. I had to crawl out of the sea. I couldn't walk out of the sea and I couldn't get back up the hill very easily. And I said, I can't do that anymore. Must be tired, whatever. Got back to New York City, started falling, falling, falling. I was just as stiff as a board. I would fall like a soldier, just dead soldier, boom, like that. And uh, nobody could diagnose what I had. I was hospitalized. I was tested, tested, tested. And one little, wonderful, smart neuro neurologist said, you love life so much. You're such optimist. I'm not going to let you die. I'm going to take your spinal fluid and I'm going to take your blood and I'm going to send it out to every good research laboratory in the United States. And we're going to find out what your diagnosis is. We've got to, otherwise we can't, we can't help you. And she did. And a couple of weeks later, Mayo Clinic came back. The only one who could diagnose what I had, paraneoplastic syndrome, which means your, some cancer is setting off your antibodies which are trying to, the antibodies are trying to attack the cancer and then the antibodies go crazy and they start attacking your central nervous system. And so my antibodies were on my central nervous system and it made me cause my legs to disappear for a while. I couldn't do anything. So um, I, you know, was stayed in New York for a while. I was given all kinds of treatments for it, plasma, pharesis, immunoglobulin. I don't even want to know all the names. I had the, the cancer removed. I did chemo. I did radiation. But my antibodies were having a good time. They were still marching away, eating away on my central nervous system. 
and it was a, just would have been a matter of time where I would have been dead. And uh, someone said, you know, there is a doctor in Jacksonville, Florida at Mayo Clinic who really is an expert on perineal plastic syndrome. And you need to go there or you're gonna die. And uh, I did. I moved, I'd left all my furniture behind. I just packed my bag, little bag, came to Florida. And, uh, you know, I would have never left my home in New York because I loved it so much and my beach house and everything else. But I left everything. I couldn't drive anymore. I couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything. So I came. And uh, since then, I've been Mayo Clinic's patient. And now most people who have perineoplastic syndrome, if it's not diagnosed, will probably die within a few months. And there's probably a lot of people who have it and it's not diagnosed. It's very difficult to diagnose and it's impossible to cure. It's mm -hmm. a fatal illness. And most people they know that they know of are dead within three years. I'm now on my eighth year. Mm. So I'm making history. And so Mayo Clinic is making a lovely video to be shown to doctors, nurses, and to inspire other patients and to uh, use as advertising for Mayo or whatever. So that's kind of my newest thing. And so Mayo has been so good to me and, and so helpful and so wonderful. And of course, I'm giving something back to them now because I'm becoming a spokesperson for them mm -hmm. and speaking and doing workshops and whatever they need me to do. And so that's my Mayo Clinic story. They were And I awesome. love that. And I, I want, would like to suggest, um, and, and maybe you can confirm that one of the reasons that you've survived this long is because. You want me to answer that one? Yeah. Well, obviously Mayo is doing the right treatment. There's no cure. And they're giving me some kind of, of uh, infusions every couple of months to try to hold the antibodies down. But Mayo will be the first ones to say, it's my attitude, it's my motivation, it's my persistence. It's my willingness to do what I'm supposed to do, eat properly, exercise, sleep properly, and don't do anything dumb. You know, don't break bones or whatever, and try not to fall, et cetera. But they say, if it weren't for your attitude, mm -hmm. you'd be dead by this time, or you would be in a wheelchair permanently or in a hospital bed. And I'm not. I'm out there preaching, teaching, speaking, doing workshops, writing books. On podcasts. <laughs> and on podcasts, and then whatever. <laughs> Joy, what a gift of life that you offer all of us. And um, you know, I want to thank you for being um, such an encourager to others, and hopefully now to, to the listeners of this podcast that you know, will get to witness and hear part of your story. I encourage them to read your book, because if you think you're having a hard time that you could see how you pulled yourself out of, but yes, you said it wasn't just, oh, everything's going to be okay. You, you, you did the work in those low points, but you persevered. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, you've done it with enthusiasm and delight for, for life. And it's there for each and every one of us. And you are um, showing us how to do it. You know, when the well, time thank you, Tam, for saying that. And of course, I have a new mission now, a new ministry, 
I'm, I'm still preaching. I'm still doing workshops. But my new ministry is involved with disabilities. Mm-hmm. I'm a disabled person. I, I can only walk with a rollator or a couple of canes with someone with me. And um, I've learned how people who are disabled are discriminated against. They are not treated the same because people don't know how to treat them or don't know what to do with them, etc. It's not just because they're cruel people. But I am now a spokesperson for disabled people talking about what it feels like to become disabled, what it means to be discriminated against, how to prepare to become disabled, because when we get older, we will be disabled. Hearing, vision, mind, you know, walking, whatever. And, you know, churches are asking me to preach sermons on disabilities now. And uh, I'm doing a lot of speaking. So it's my new mission. I can't wait to hear to hear because I, I think that uh, you again will bring the grace of joy to to that work as well. And it's needed. I think that um, people sometimes don't know what to do when they see someone disabled, so they don't do anything. And right. um, and I think what I'm hearing you say is that that, you know, to to do something, to offer a hand, to open the door, to ask if you can help um, in some way. And I think you said that at the beginning, which is, which is interesting. Um, I always ask people what their favorite words to live by are. And I think you, you mentioned this earlier, but you said never, never, never give up. That's right. And I still believe that. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for, for being here today and for, for talking about your extraordinary life with me. It's really been a blessing and, I'm looking forward to having another 15, 16 years of friendship with you. Thank you, Pam. It's been a delight. I'm Pam Rotelli-Robertson, and you have been listening to Talking Joy, talks that help you realize your value while creating authentic connections with others. For more information about our talk today or to get in touch, you can find us at talkingjoy.org. And to keep the encouragement going, you can also follow Talking Joy on Instagram and Facebook. Simple, joyful, fun. Thanks for listening. This is Talking Joy.